Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome to 90 Minutes of Information that you need to have in order to see the urgency of the moment. What I mean by that, we're going to cover current events happening around this world, and at the end of the broadcast, I'll take a look at the book. We're referring, of course, to the Bible and the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word. The ancient Jewish prophets pre-wrote history 2,500 years ago, and we see that history coming to pass today. Well, our broadcast partners are standing by. want you to keep the dial set right where it is. One special interview upcoming, Winky Madad, he's going to talk about the Jewish connections to the Western Wall. About 10,000 Jews were servants of Herod the Great who built that Western Wall. And Sheikh Sabri, who is the Islamic radical leader in Jerusalem, makes the statement the Jews have no connection to the Western Wall. We'll get to that discussion momentarily. Keep the dial right where it is. Now let's get to our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. He looks at geopolitical activities around the world, gives us his valuable expertise and his analysis as to how they may well fit into a prophetic scenario. Ken, Israel, their intelligence community, says they believe that Iran can have a nuclear weapon in two years. I thought that the nuclear deal that Obama put together was to stop them from developing one, but now they're saying it's two years and they'll have a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. Well, Jimmy, the Israeli intelligence community, specifically Amman, the uh, military intelligence, regularly makes this kind of estimate to the Knesset. They deliver documents and analysis to the Knesset, which uh, sooner or later leaks out. Sometimes they testify in public. And this kind of estimate is something, uh, frankly, to be expected. We know from what is just on the public record, nothing classified and nothing that the Israelis Uh, have that is classified, that the Iranians have maintained their nuclear weapons capabilities. In other words, the material capabilities to produce highly enriched uranium, they still have those factories, the centrifuges to spin them. We know that they have maintained all of the technology used to detonate a bomb. The Israelis, when they captured the nuclear archive in Tehran last year, two of the nuclear archives actually, they found the documents showing the experiments that had been conducted by the Iranians to develop a nuclear warhead. So two years, I would say, is a conservative estimate. But again, it all hinges on one thing, which is the Ayatollah's determination to actually begin production of a nuclear weapon. What we're talking about here is the lag time between a political decision being made in Tehran and their ability to actually produce a workable nuclear weapon. And meanwhile, the president of Iran, Rouhani, is saying that the Iranian revolution is thriving and the United States is having a failure in their part in the Middle East. Is that a correct evaluation? (laughs) Well, uh, I don't think so. But uh, it's certainly a predictable one. We have just had this past week, the 40th anniversary, uh, I call it the 40 years of terror in Iran, uh, 40 years after the Islamic thugs carried out a coup d'etat in the streets of Tehran 
and, a, and across Iran, actually, taking over Air Force bases, Army bases, rounding up generals and colonels in the Shah's army, massacring 3,500 of them uh, over the next couple of days in 1979. And this really was the beginning of an era of darkness that descended upon Iran. Today, the regime is hard-pressed by international sanctions. The United States has reimposed its own sanctions, and other countries are joining us bit by bit. Uh, the economy in Iran is in the doldrums. Uh, unemployment is way up. The currency, the bottom has fallen out of the currency. And the Iranian regime is having problems selling its oil. And, and when they have problems selling their oil, they have problems with everything else because they don't export a heck of a lot more than oil, unless you count pistachios and Persian carpets. Now, those are <laughs> significant, but, you know, they really don't uh, hold a candle to the oil exports. And the oil exports are now down one-half. So I would say Rouhani is being normally and predictably optimistic as he whistles past the graveyard of the regime. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Uh, let's look across the entire world. In Moscow, there's a meeting going on between Iran Russia and Turkey, long-term talks for peace, some type of peace in Syria. Meanwhile, in Warsaw, the United States, according to Russia, are holding up a conference there and beating the war drums. Is that a good evaluation there? I, I wouldn't call it beating the drums of war. The United States, uh, the Trump administration, is not talking about going to war with Iran, despite what all the alarmists would like us to believe. They're talking about again, recreating or reforging this international alliance to increase the pressure on the Iranian regime. So the regime will back off from its terrorist operations in Europe and elsewhere around the world. So it will back off from its nuclear weapons programs. And so it will back off on uh, the murder against its own opposition domestically and uh, and elsewhere. I don't think the Iranians are going to be affected by it, but that's what's going on. You have these two different summits this week, one in Warsaw and the other in Moscow. Ken, this last week I read an article that said what's happening, which you've just explained to us, is like before World War One, how the United States and Russia were battling for control of the Middle East. Would you compare those two as something of the same? Well, there, there's a similarity in, in that both the United States and uh, Russia are, in fact, vying for influence across the Middle East. And the only reason that that's happening is because during the eight years of the Obama administration, we gave up a position of dominance. Russia was not in Syria before Obama. It was Obama who basically invited them in. Russia was not uh, in Iraq. Russia was not in many different places. They were not in Turkey. Uh, they were not in Egypt. So the Russians have been advancing their own influence as the United States withdrew from the Middle East during Obama. So what's happening now is that the Trump administration is trying to reestablish the traditional American relationships with Turkey, with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia, uh, and other countries across the region. And I think they're, they're having quite a bit of success because those countries would much prefer doing business with us than they would with Russia. Meanwhile, there is a three-day meeting in Russia before we leave the subject of Russia. And uh, Russian leadership has brought together the leadership of Hamas and Fatah, telling these two factions of the Palestinian body politic, if they will unite, come together, they can win. It looks like Russia could not get in on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and their peace. 
but now they're trying to assist the uh, Palestinians to go after the Israelis. Well, that's right. And, and remember that the PLO has been a longtime ally of the Soviet Union, right? It goes back to the 1970s and, and the 1980s. So this is nothing new. But what is new is the inability of Moscow to impose its will on these rival factions within the Palestinian leadership, Hamas and Fatah. Uh, I find that almost ironic. Here is Russia that thinks that they are so powerful in the Middle East that they can work with Turkey and work with Iran to reform the future of Syria after its civil war, and yet they're incapable of getting two rival Palestinian uh, factions to work together to negotiate a, a peace agreement with Israel. It is ironic. I read in another report that the Muslim influence is declining in Turkey. That does not seem to be true to me, but what do you know about that? Well, this is a poll that was taken, and I think it's a little bit early to judge this. But we saw, by the way, similar things happen in Iran, where Islam, despite 40 years of an Islamic state in Iran, or perhaps because of those 40 years of an Islamic state, the role of Islam has diminished in Iran, Iranian people go less to the mosque than they did before under the Shah because they see the, the regime of murder and mayhem that is being carried out in the name of Islam. I would suggest that this is perhaps what's beginning to happen in Turkey as Turkey increasingly becomes an Islamic state, uh, but it's a little early to tell, I would say. What about the United States accusing China of preparing for World War III? A lot of talk about World War III now it looks like China's being brought into this agenda. Are they possibly preparing, actually, for World War III? Well, China is clearly preparing to become the dominant world power by 2050. It's in all of their official documents. They don't make a secret out of this. They're building aircraft carriers. They're expanding uh, their navy, their air force. They're modernizing their nuclear weapons. They have the Belt and Road Initiative, which is to establish Chinese military and commercial bases through all of the world's trading routes. They've been buying up uh, uh, container ports uh, around the world and establishing new bases in Pakistan, uh, in the Arabian Sea, at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. They have a military base on the Red Sea. So the Chinese clearly are expanding. They clearly would like to become the dominant power. Uh, but they're also cautious in the way that they exert that power. They have gone incrementally. Right now they're at the stage where they're trying to assert their influence and their, their sovereignty, really, over the South China Sea. So you've had a number of incidents recently between Chinese uh, warships and U.S. warships in the South China Sea, near the Spratly Islands and the Parcells. So that's the kind of thing that's happening today. We're not headed towards World War III with China in the next decade. But, but by 2050, if we do not prepare for this well ahead of time, the Chinese are going to assert themselves militarily. When we talk with Ken Timmerman, we cover the waterfront because you need to know geopolitically how things are unfolding across this world, and then we bring it together with a prophetic scenario found in God's Word. And every issue that we brought up with a different nation or two uh, they're mentioned in Bible prophecy. Ken, thank you so very much. You just are so valuable to us. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much to me. Always a pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, a Middle East news update. David Dolan standing by. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's where the broadcast table is, and we're going to do the entire program from here. We're going to stay in Chattanooga for the weekend because we'll be at the Temple Baptist Church on Rossville Boulevard here in Chattanooga. Dr. James Rushing is the pastor inviting everybody to come and visit the church for a one-day prophecy conference. Our first meeting, Sunday morning, 10.50, 6 p.m. in the evening service with prophecy Q&A at 5.30. Love to have you come. Temple Baptist Church, it's on Rossville Boulevard, but technically still in the Chattanooga city limits. Come join us for the prophecy conference. Well, as promised, David Dolan standing by. He's going to give us a Middle East news update. You know, he's been a journalist in the Middle East for over 30 years. He knows that place like the back of his hand. That's why we always go to him on each broadcast every Saturday. We want to find out exactly what he is helping us to understand about that unique part of the world. And David, let me talk with you about this headline, Israel believes that Iran could have a nuclear bomb within two years. The latest intelligence report in Israel making that statement, what do you know? Yes, Jimmy, every year in January or early February, the Israeli military intelligence gives its forecast for the coming year, 
and included was uh, just what you said, that the Iranians are believed to have enough centrifuges, to have enough uranium already stockpiled, to have other things ready to go so that they could have a fully working nuclear bomb or even more. They said in five or six even within two years once the decision was taken to restart their program. And, of course, recently we've had statements from some of their leaders warning that they may indeed restart their program. That's when they've been saying that they're also going to continue their ballistic missile productions and uh, not stop that, as the Europeans in particular and the United States are asking them to do. That forecast, Jimmy, had a few other unnerving uh, things for the year. The good news that Iran is moving its forces north and east from the Golan border, but they're doing that because the U.S. is pulling out, and so they feel they'll be safer a little bit further back, but that they're at the same time giving surface missiles to their allies, their Shiite proxy forces, including Hezbollah, a lot of them are wearing Syrian army uniforms, but they're not actually Syrian army. And uh, that's where we had some action, of course, earlier in this week, where Israel struck uh, the town of Kenetra right on the Golan border. You've been there, an abandoned town, used to be the capital of Kenetra province. And Israeli drones hit a few targets there, an abandoned hospital and a couple other targets where they know that these militiamen are operating, and that intelligence forecast not only said that Iran could have a nuclear bomb in a few years, but in the meantime, they are going to step up attacks across the border into Israel from these proxy forces, and also they said they would do the same probably down in the Gaza border, where we again had trouble on Friday. They've been having nightly protests now for the past two weeks there, Jimmy, step that up, so the situation is pretty hot, but Iran remains the main focus of Israel, as Prime Minister Netanyahu made clear this week. And, of course, the ultimate weapon, a nuclear weapon, is their greatest fear. But in the meantime, Hezbollah and Hamas and these forces in Syria and some in Iraq have enough rocket power right now to do a great deal of damage to Israel, even without any of these having a nuclear warhead on them. And that's a great concern highlighted in this report. And most of those weapons in those locations you just mentioned being supplied by Iran. That's why I believe the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, is in Warsaw for the big meeting there. Sixty different nations represented with Arab leaders. And Netanyahu excited about the fact that these Arab leaders are coming together to see how they can combat Iran. I mean, this is an interesting meeting in Warsaw, isn't it? Well, it was, Jimmy, of course, organized by the United States, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo showed up and gave a very strong speech urging all of the countries attending. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu was the only head of state there, Jimmy, although Vice President Pence was there from the United States and the Secretary of State. All the other countries sent foreign ministers or deputy foreign ministers. Nevertheless, six of them were Arab countries that Israel does not have ties with. He was famously seated next to Khaled al-Yamani, the, uh, the Yemeni uh, foreign minister. Uh, later, uh, Yemen put out a statement that that was a mistake. Netanyahu took the wrong seat. He wasn't supposed to be sitting next to him. Nevertheless, uh, Netanyahu's microphone failed, and uh, Yamani handed him his. Netanyahu joked, well, this is a step-by-step process, but we're improving ties. But the truth is, Jimmy, that is 
Israel has been supplying aid, uh, well, some military aid and some other aid to the anti-Iranian forces in Yemen that are fighting the Houthi rebels backed by Iran. Uh, Saudi Arabia is doing the same. And Pompeo stressed, and Netanyahu did in his comments, that this is our greatest enemy. We all share it, uh, creating all sorts of problems around the region, and we have to stand together, united against them. And, of course, Pompeo said that there's no way that peace can come to the region, that the Middle East will ever settle down and solve these other problems, the Palestinian issue, whatever, as long as Iran is expanding its forces in the area. And they continue to do that. Jimmy reports this week that they're going to supply Lebanon, or they've offered anyway to supply Lebanon with new anti-aircraft missile systems. Russia's doing the same. The Russian foreign minister actually was there recently. So the situation very, very tense uh, as Israel goes into this election season. But that conference, very, very important. And for Netanyahu, a showcase of the relations that he's built in the years he's been in office with many of these Arab and other leaders. You know, that's an interesting conference going on there in Warsaw. But at the same time, there's a conference going on in Moscow with Russia, Turkey, and Syria coming together, and Iran to discuss peace in Syria, a established peace that will at least have some validity in operation. But at the same time, they take uh, the opportunity to bring Hamas and Fatah, those two factions of the body politic of the Palestinian people together, into Russia. And uh, the Russians are telling them, hey, if you two guys get together, you can win this situation with the Israelis. Well, Jimmy, there's just no question now that Vladimir Putin is on the march in the Middle East. He's influencing countries all over the region. Uh, I just mentioned Lebanon. They're stepping up their relations there. They have clearly helped the Assad regime to win the war. They haven't completely won it yet, but for the most part they have in Syria, whereas uh, three years ago Assad was losing, and before that the U.S. was saying he's going to be out of power. We'll make sure of that. Well, that didn't happen. Stepping up relations with Iraq, also with Saudi Arabia, with the Khashoggi affair having harmed relations with the U.S. He's stepping into that vacuum. And the Jerusalem report uh, this week said that, you know, Russia will be the dominant power in the region before long. And, of course, that includes Gaza. They've had relations with Hamas and Islamic Jihad uh, for some time now, but they're stepping that up. So it's a very, very bad situation, Jimmy. And, oh, by the way, I mentioned Kinetra earlier. I didn't say that the Syrian state news agency for the first time admitted that Israel had carried out an attack on its soil. That's the first time they've ever confirmed that. And they said the Israeli enemy had carried out this attack. That's the first time they've used such strong language to describe Israel. So, you know, the war front heating up in the north and in the Gaza Strip, and Hamas will take aid wherever it uh, can get it. And again, we're seeing the old Soviet Union-style intervention in the region returning, and that's obviously not good for Israel. Netanyahu going to meet with uh, Putin soon, and I'm sure he'll be bringing all this up and trying to persuade him to tone this thing down, but they're on a roll, Jimmy, and it doesn't look like uh, Moscow is going to turn around anytime soon. Quickly, if you can, the Sanhedrin, the 70 wise Jewish scholars who are responsible uh, for Jewish law and also for helping bring together the preparations for the next temple, they're calling for the 70 nations. That's a special group that will replace the United Nations 
uh, to live a life of sexual purity, part of the preparation for the next temple? Well, I wish them luck, but it doesn't look like the world's going in that direction at all. The nations are getting worse and worse. The sin is increasing. The violence is increasing everywhere. But, of course, that is known by the rabbis, known from the scriptures, to be one of the signs of the coming kingdom of God and of the messianic reign coming to earth, that wars would increase, violence would increase, perversity would increase, and all those things are happening, but they're at least making that call and getting people to think about what they could be doing a little bit differently to get them maybe a bit closer to God. I, like you, David, do not understand how that's going to happen. Sexual impurity is rampant across this world. Only Jesus can clear that up when he does return. David Dolan, the man who covers a key region in the world when you want to understand God's prophetic scenario for the end times, written by the ancient Jewish prophets, and that's David Dolan, longtime journalist in that region of the world. David, thank you so much. We'll have another conversation next week for sure. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Winky Madad is coming to the broadcast table. We're going to talk about the Sheikh Shabri, who is an Islamic council leader there in Jerusalem, saying there's no connection to the Western Wall by the Jewish people. Hello, what about Herod the Great? He caused the Jews to build that Western Wall. We'll get into that discussion with Winky Madad in a moment, right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, welcome back to Prophecy Today. Here at uh, the location of Broadcast Central, Chattanooga, and this is the international headquarters for Prophecy Today. Glad to be home for the weekend. We'll be at Temple Baptist Church over in Rossville this weekend. More details when we get a moment here on the broadcast today. Right now, as promised, we're going to bring Winky Madad to this broadcast table and the microphones so we can talk about a couple of issues that deal with Israel, but in particular with the people who live in Israel. So we go beyond what we have when we get our Middle East news update from Dave Dolan, and we go to Winky Madad to talk about a couple of these issues. Winky, the Supreme Islamic Council there in Jerusalem said that there is no connection to the Western Wall. Now, what authority does this man have? Sheikh Sabri, I believe his name is. However, does he have any authority to make this statement? And then number two, where does he get his source from to say that is not the case? 
Well, Jimmy, you can imagine if I asked him through you, perhaps, if you would like to interview him, is it true that there's uh, no connection between the Al-Aqsa Mosque and Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is not uh, mentioned at all in the Quran, and there are some people that think that it's actually referring to a mosque somewhere in Saudi Arabia. But we'll ignore that for the moment. Uh, Israel in 1967 uh, sort of uh, established what we call a status quo, Whatever was at that time continues until there's a, a final peace treaty. And the Islamic religious trust of the Muslims in uh, Jordan at that time, properly known as the Waqf, uh, was placed as the internal administration of the site because Moshe Dayan decided that he'd leave the Temple Mount uh, to the Muslims and give the Jews, in a certain sense, the right to return only to the Western Wall in a religious sense. Jews and Christians and other people can visit the Temple Mount, but only at certain times. And as you well know, uh, no prayer or any sort of devotional practices can be done at that site. You just have to walk around, nod your head, take a few pictures, and go ooh and ah. And so that's the power that this man has. Whatever he says, of course... I or anybody else, Dr. Mordechai Kedar or or any of the other guests I think you have on from time to time would be able to argue with him, but he is in charge of the internal administration of the Temple Mount. Talk to me about El-Laqsa Mosque. Now, there are two buildings on top of the Temple Mount, the Gold Dome Building, the Dome of the Rock, and then at the southern end of the Temple Mount, there's a Pewter Dome building. As I understand it, that is a Luxa Mosque, and the other building is somewhat of a commemorative building. Am I correct, or what's the true story? You're basically correct. In fact, there are Islamic sources that have a Yemenite Jew who accompanied Omar al-Khatib, who was the conqueror of Jerusalem, and he said, well, we must put a, a mosque here. And so the uh, Jewish fellow, who was in league with the Muslims uh, during their military trek up from Saudi Arabia through Syria into the land of Israel, said, why not here? And Omar said, oh, I know you. This is where Solomon's temple was, which actually basically is, actually is mentioned in the Koran. And he said, no, we can't do it there. We're going to have it on the other side of the Temple Mount in the south, because in any way we face south because we face Mecca. So a couple of years, a couple of decades later, the what you call properly the Golden Dome or the, gold, or the Dome of the Rock, as a ceremonial monument to the sacred stone underneath, which according to Islamic legend is from where Muhammad took a trip to heaven to visit with all the previous prophets. And that's actually, no one really prays there, in fact, usually women during the Ramadan month, when the whole platform is filled with tens of thousands of males, they'll keep to the uh, to that platform, which is a little bit raised above the level of the Temple Mount itself. And speaking of that foundation stone underneath that gold dome, uh, that's where the Jewish people say was the center of the Garden of Eden, where God created Adam and Eve. Is that correct? Uh, there are stories about that, for sure. Let me put it this way, because you and I, Jimmy, like to stick to the Bible. It is the uh, threshing floor where which uh, David, King David, when he took Jerusalem, purchased from, in Hebrew we pronounce it Aravna, 
who uh, had a farm up there. We do believe that's where Abraham uh, almost sacrificed Isaac uh, and some other Midrashic rabbinic thoughts about that. But for sure, that was inside the center of the Holy of Holies of the Temple, both of Solomon and then of Herod. And uh, going back even dating to the Garden of Eden, as I understand the scriptures and all that's connected with it. Now, I bring all that history up because Sheikh Sabri, who's the one with the Supreme Islamic Council there, is making the statement that there is a link to Al-Aqsa. How did he come about that? Is that history, tradition, or what? Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, I don't have to confirm or deny everything Sheikh Sabri says. Uh, we always manage to find differences because of, uh, to be truthful and honest on your program, there's a lot more than theology involved here. Uh, for the Arab Muslims in the land of Israel, the Temple Mount represents sort of a last uh, stand, a sort of a fortress against uh, Jews and Zionism. And so, whereas in 1924-25, the former Mufti could publish a pamphlet saying there's no doubt that Solomon's Temple was here, Sheikh Sabri will tell you it's nowhere near here on the Temple Mount and, and all, all sorts of other stories. And that's where we get into sort of, I guess we'd have to say, the politics of the conflict rather than archaeology, scientific and biblical, prophetical uh, evidence of what was there or was not there. Yeah, political is key in that phrase that you just used about how this conflict is continuing on. Well, let me go back now 2,000 years, and as I understand history, Herod the Great built the retaining wall, the eastern, southern, and western retaining wall, and he used, I've heard the number, 10,000 Jewish slaves to build that. He was quite the builder, and he wanted that retaining wall around the Temple Mount so the Temple Mount itself could not slide down into the Kidron Valley and destroy whatever was up there. Now, do you know the connection between the Jews and Herod the Great and the building of that retaining wall? Well, Jimmy, the whole topography of the Temple Mount, of course, it's, it's Mount Moriah where Abraham, according to our biblical sources, brought Isaac to be bound and almost sacrificed. In order to build a flat platform or floor that would hold the temple, you would have to raise up the floor, and you would do that sort of artificially by surrounding it with a wall or walls, and uh, then straighten it out. Uh, Herod basically doubled the area of the first temple precincts or courtyards, especially in the south and towards the north, into the actually the rock. I mean, uh, I think you've been up there. If you go to the north and look north, you can see uh, parts of the cutaway rock quite obvious there. And so he did that by artificially containing uh, the courtyards with the various walls, although there were walls there earlier. They're on the eastern wall, for example. You can see remnants of Hasmonean stone facing, which is uh, quite different from Herodian stone facing. Uh, Jimmy, you'll have to bring another group of people who are listening to this program to, to, to point out what we're talking about right now in terms mm-hmm. of stone facing. Right. And that's how basically the walls uh, were. Uh, and when the Romans came uh, to conquer Jerusalem in uh, the second half of the first century. It seems like ignorance or at the least, stupidity 
for Sheikh Sabrid to say the Jews have no connection to the Western Wall. They helped build that Western Wall, and thus they have a right to go there and pray. I mean, uh, that is guaranteed, is it not, or is it not guaranteed? Guaranteed over and triple, Jimmy. You could uh, visit it to the Western Wall and walk inside to the north of the wall, and you can, there, as you know, there are various open, uh, you look, I'll just have to describe it, Jimmy. You look, look down almost double the height of the Western Wall. Right, right. Uh, you can stand over it and look down and see how deep into the ground the wall is, the foundation stones of the, of, uh, of the wall are built. Yeah. And if you walk from uh, David City now, you can take the underground route that was built uh, for the uh, pilgrims, and you can come up and literally touch the Western Wall at the extreme southwestern corner of the wall. So he's got a, a mosque, and he's got a Dome of the Rock that's sitting on top of our property. <laughs> it certainly is. And I've been down there in that area, and there's a, one of the largest foundation stones that has ever been seen, about 400 tons worth, is down there, one of those foundation stones for the wall. Well, that uh, kind of brings to a conclusion our discussion on the wall. The Jews have the right to be able to pray at that Western Wall, no matter what the Supreme Islamic Council says in, through Sheikh Sabri. One final thought I want to ask you about. Uh, the Trump peace plan is about to be revealed there in the Middle East. Israel will know all the details. It looks like what we're hearing, and again, nobody has that released plan yet, but it looks like uh, that the plan calls for a large amount of the land in Judea and Samaria to be given up so they can have a Palestinian state. How are the settlers, the Jewish people, the ones who live in the Jewish communities out there in Judea and Samaria, how are they going to react to that? Will they stand for it? What are they going to be able to do? Well, I'm sure that uh, there will be pressure on the government not to kowtow to such a injurious stroke and step against Israel's security, against Israel's history, against Israel's religious rights to be in those areas. I think the uh, Palestinian Authority for the past uh, 50 years has proven to be completely willing to uh, invalidate and break up any agreement they're on. I don't think they're very truthful or reliable. I know that perhaps President Trump and his peace team has to build on the previous efforts. And, of course, we know what President Clinton had suggested, the famous parameters. Uh, Mr. Obama tried to get involved. But uh, I'm sure that there'll be a bit of a difference uh, because I think that this time the team will bring up certain things that the Arabs definitely will not accept in terms of their refugee status and other issues. So I think, Jimmy, I'm going to call it as uh, the Trump team is going to go through the motions. Look, Jimmy, this, this past week, the Arabs uh, of the Palestinian Authority refused to go to Warsaw. I mean, they didn't have to commit to anything just to show up, but they're not willing to do even that. Uh, so I, I think that we could trust them to be uh, not very trustworthy on peace deals. I would think it unfortunate that Mr. Trump, if it happens the way the reports are, was taking such a far-reaching step that would hurt Israel. And I'm sure he'll heal from uh, his supporters 
uh, in Congress, outside of Congress, in churches, in schools, and institutions around the land, uh, exactly uh, what he should be doing for Israel and not against Israel. Winky, you and I have both read the last chapter written by the ancient Jewish prophets Zechariah and Ezekiel. So you'll have Judea and Samaria, you'll have the Temple Mount and a temple there. Not too very long into the future, according to God's Word, will you not? Jimmy, I'm willing to take your word based on the word of the prophets, and I think everything will come out good in the end. Winky Madad, our special broadcast partner, when we want to talk about the Jewish people and their concepts, understanding of these concepts that are unfolding before our very eyes on a daily basis, we go to Winky, who is one of those men who lives in a Jewish community in Judea and Samaria, the location of Shiloh. Winky, thank you so very much. I appreciate the conversation. We'll have another one real soon. Jimmy, thank you for having me on, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Winky Madad, always able to come to this broadcast table and elaborate on whatever the subject may be. Of course, a very interesting conversation about the no connection for the Jewish people to the Western Wall. Total lie coming from Sheikh Sabri. John Root is the man who covers the European Union, another key region in this world. If you're going to want to stay on top of how the prophetic scenario of God's Word is quickly coming together, you look at two regions, the Middle East, and then you look at the European Union. That's what John does with us here on Prophecy Today. Lived over 30 years, I think, in Brussels, Belgium, headquarters for the European Union, and he is on top of everything. John, let me begin right away with you. The Vice President of the United States there in Warsaw, Poland, for the big conference, urging the European Union to pull out of the nuclear deal And they believe, in fact, what Pence said was Iran is planning for another holocaust against Israel. What do you know about this meeting in Warsaw and the vice president's comments? Uh, It's going to be harder and harder for the European Union to walk this tightrope trying to please Iran and the United States simultaneously. The United States diplomatic arm, you can be sure, has a lot of communication with Europe on this uh, issue because, especially just in the last uh, couple weeks, was the uh, INSTEX financial system to bypass the U.S. sanctions. So the U.S. is reacting quite strongly on this. The Warsaw Conference is a large representation. I believe there are 60 foreign ministers that are there. But the E3, Britain, France, and Germany, which have done this sort of bartering system to sidestep the sanctions, apparently they have not sent their highest-level delegations. So uh, Vice President Pence has come out very strong for the European Union. They should choose their side on this, because if not, uh, and they continue with Iran to appease, and then they're actually helping to support global terrorism, and he laid out the threat of course, that there's a regime that is plotting, quote, a new holocaust. Yes, absolutely, and the Bible calls for that, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8. Well, uh, we got to touch base with Brexit again this week. Donald Tusk, who is the head of the council, that would be the group of leaders from the, the 28 member states, which still includes the United Kingdom, by the way, he says that uh, 
the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Theresa May, has really no realistic plan for being able to deal with Brexit. Is that pretty much on target? Well, she has no realistic plan, and he's saying that, you know, in a controversial, judgmental fashion, but it's because of the EU hierarchy that that's the case. So uh, the U.K. voted to leave with Brexit, and the whole idea was to be able to implement a shift out of the European Union system. But now the European Commission and other institutions are placing requirements on the United Kingdom that essentially links them continually, especially to the trade association and the border situation with Northern Ireland. So as this is coming down, it is truly a crisis upon a crisis. And uh, what will happen? Theresa May is going to have another vote with Parliament. It's completely fragmented. They tried to do amendments. Uh, None of those had sufficient support. And so it's really coming down to the wire. It will It sure looks right now that it will be a hard Brexit, and that will be an example to other countries that they can actually leave without a fixed agreement, and things will turn out okay. So this would be a nightmare for the European Union to know that there's a way out. And that's why we continue week to week to talk about Brexit. You may not be as interested in Brexit as some of us serious prophecy teachers are, but we're watching this very closely, especially because of the domino effect, which is actually what John brought to our attention. There seems to be a feud going on between France and Italy. Is this really just a foretaste or the top of the iceberg as it relates to all of Europe, what they're doing? Europe is heating up, melting down at the same time. (laughs) France has had this enormous amount of unrest. There's this movement, the uh, Gilets Jaunes, which means the Yellow Vest. And incidentally, everyone's probably seen the pictures of the Yellow Vest and the riots and burning cars and whatever, which initiated uh, in protest to tax on fuel. But uh, even in, when I lived in Belgium, the Yellow Vests are required in your car for an emergency. So this movement, everybody has these Yellow Vests, and so... That was sort of convenient for them. But Italy came out in support of the Yellow Vest movement, which is just, you know, unheard of. And so it is a feud between Paris and and Rome. Paris has pulled out their diplomats, and Italy has now a populist government since last June. The French president, Macron, is having a very difficult time. He's instituting his own political party, which is en marche, which means forward. And uh, Italy is just not going to play the game. They're being very vocal and independent. At the same time, they're joining some of these movements from uh, Austria, Poland, Hungary, for example. They're aligning with this. And this really spells a major crisis for the parliamentary elections, which are just coming up at the end of May, beginning of June. The face of Europe is never going to be the same. So there's a big triangle here, Brussels, France, and Italy. Italy is going to be a catalyst for more to come. That's why we stay on top of all of these issues that are coming out of the European Union with John Rood. One final thought for you, John. Many times I have been asked if I was Jewish, uh, my name, D. Young, 
seemingly when some of during the Holocaust, when some of the Jews left Germany and other locations, went into Holland, changed their name to de Young because that's a, a very a common name in Holland. Now Dutch textbooks are saying that Jerusalem, it's holy to the Muslims and the Christians, but not to the Jews. Holland seems to be changing their thoughts against the Jewish people. That That's interesting, Jimmy, as well. My name, Rude, in Dutch is Rot, which is the color red, and it's linked to Jewish heritage in northern Netherlands from the Groningen region. So possibly we could be related then. <laughs> <laughs> the the Dutch textbook has come out omitting Jerusalem's significance to Jews. So that's just, just amazing. Groups have come out saying, you know, this is a historical falsification. And as you're saying, in the Netherlands, we're getting not only a dichotomy, but we're getting a wide spectrum because it's a liberal con- country with liberal policies. So just about everybody has a voice. But the main leadership has expressed some very liberal views, and you might remember it's been many years now, but the ex-president of the European Central Bank, Wim Dijsenberg, who was Dutch, he was literally flying a Palestinian flag at his residence. Hmm. Imagine how that could be done. And so this liberal uh, taste has been coming out of the Netherlands. It can be a bit of a powder keg there, and apparently this textbook saying Basically, Jerusalem is not significant to the Jews. It, their liberal policy, a teacher could actually choose this book uh, at, at some occasion and have it as their curriculum. In just a moment, my son Jim Jr. will come to the broadcast table with a question from one of our listeners. But uh, you've just heard my cousin, <laughs> John. Maybe we are kin somehow. My cousin reporting on the European Union. John Rood, thank you so very much. It's a very key we keep a close eye on this region of the world. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week. Thank you. God bless you all. And uh, since I did mention Jim Jr., Jim, you have a question for us from one of our listeners right here on Prophecy Today. We sure do, Dad. And this is one of our favorite times of the week to take questions from our listeners that they send in and give them answers. Nancy Kenneth sends in a question. Can you tell us when the future 40 years of desolation of Egypt will occur? Before the rapture, during the tribulation, what is the timeline for this event? In your opinion, what event will occur to cause the desolation? Well, let me just say, Nancy, uh, you've made some presumptions that I don't agree with. The first part of your question, can you tell us when the future 40 years of the desolation of Egypt will take place? If you'll read that entire chapter, and this is found always, by the way, if you're sending us a question, put in the passage of Scripture that Mm -hmm. you're dealing with. I do believe that uh, she has been dealing with the book of Ezekiel, chapter 29. I think that's what she's talking about, because it does mention in Ezekiel, chapter 29, verses 11 to 13, that there's going to be a 40-year period of time. Verse 13, yet thus saith the Lord God, at the end of the 40 years will I gather the Egyptians from the people wherever they have been scattered. In verses 11, 12, and 13, it mentions the 40 years, and in verse 12, the desolate 40 years of period of time for the Egyptian people. But in the context, this is not talking about the future. 
I believe it's talking about the past. If you continue to read this chapter and go down to verse 17 and start reading from verses 17 all the way through verse 21, you see that it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar who is going to come and attack Egypt. You might remember that Nebuchadnezzar, he was the crown prince. Crown prince in 605 B.C., when he took Daniel and his three buddies into the captivity. Nebuchadnezzar was on his way. He came out of what it was Babylon, modern-day Iraq. He went into Syria. He was in the process of defeating the Assyrians when the Egyptians came up to join in the battle against Babylon. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's army defeated the Assyrians, and then he drove Egypt back down through that land bridge, which is modern-day Israel, into northern Africa, into Egypt. At that point in time, he devastated the Egyptians because this was key for him to be able to come to power as the empire would be developed, the Babylonian Empire, because his father died, and then the crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar, would return to Babylon to become king of Babylon. So study the text in which you're asking the question from, Nancy. It's not talking about future. It's talking about the past. Nebuchadnezzar did scatter the Jews, took them out of Israel for 70 years. They were in the Babylonian captivity starting that 70 years in 605 B.C. It's the same time, I believe, as the text seems to indicate when we're talking about the 40 years of desolation for Egypt. So that happened in the past. It's not going to take place uh, during, uh, before the rapture, during the tribulation, or whenever. It happened in the past. Nancy, let me remind you that the only time periods in the future would be the seven-year tribulation period, the 1,000-year millennial period, and eternity future. So those are the time periods, and it's easy for us to answer that question pertaining to Bible prophecy. Thank you for sending in that question. Well, we've got to take a break, and after the break, David James will be having a conversation with Dr. DeYoung right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to the third half hour of Prophecy Today Weekend. Remember, I ask for 90 minutes each week. So we can give you the reports from my broadcast partners. They help us to look at current events in light of biblical prophecy. So glad you could join us. In this half hour, we're going to be talking with David James in a moment. We're going to be talking about an agreement that the Pope, Pope Francis, made with an Islamic radical Arab leader in the Gulf region. You do not want to miss the understanding of how this came together, what it's all talking about, and how it plays into the end-time scenario that is found in Bible prophecy. So keep the dial set. We'll get to that in just a moment. I want to remind you that we're staying in Chattanooga for the weekend, doing the broadcast on Saturday. On Sunday, Temple Baptist Church is located on Rossville Boulevard in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That's where we're going to be, the Temple Baptist Church, 1050 Sunday morning, 6 o'clock Sunday evening, and we'll have a prophecy Q&A a half hour before at 5.30. Hope you can come and join us for this one-day prophecy conference right here in Chattanooga at the Temple Baptist Church. 
Come and let's study the prophetic word of God. Well, let me remind you about my poll question. We have this on my website, prophecytoday.com. If you'll go there, prophecytoday.com I'm talking about. And then on the home page, scroll down on the left-hand column. You'll find the location with this poll question. Here's the poll question for this week. Like before World War I, Russia and the United States are battling for the key position of influence in the Middle East today. Do you believe that Russia is getting the upper hand in that power play as foretold in Bible prophecy? Now that's the poll question. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Home page, left-hand column, you'll find the poll question. And by the way, while you're there at my website, go to Joshua Travel. We have six tours that will take you to the land of the Bible, and some of the tours are even going to include a sojourn over into Petra in Lower Jordan, and then into Turkey, the location for the seven churches, and finally into Rome, Italy, which is the next most important prophetic city. Go to Joshua Travel. You get all the information on the itinerary, the dates, the cost, and everything you need to know to make your decision. Love to have you come. Got a lot of people going this year. You need to be a part of that tour to the land of the Bible. It'll be the greatest experience that you've ever had. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James. David and I have a weekly conversation focused on an issue that will assist the body of Christ to understand current events, especially in light of biblical prophecy, but indeed, in fact, in light of how we should live our life. Now, this weekend, we catch up with David. He's at the end of his first two weeks of teaching at the Word of Life Bible Institute there in Uganda. David, how is it going out there? Well, I do always enjoy coming to Uganda, and this is my fifth year in a row to teach at Word of Life Bible Institute here. Word of Life has a great ministry with the Bible Institute and clubs and camps, as well as a Christian school with grades 1 to 12 of about 300 students. I had a great time teaching God's plan through the ages this past week, and I also look forward to next week when I'll be teaching Signs, Wonders, and the Charismatic Movement, which is definitely a much-needed course in the African context because of how widespread Pentecostalism is, including some of the most extreme forms of the Charismatic Movement. David, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about Uganda and the current political and religious situation there. Sure. Well, Uganda sits on the equator in east-central Africa with Kenya to the east, Tanzania to the south, Rwanda to the southwest, the Democratic Republic of the Congo to the west, and South Sudan to the north. Also, a large part of its border is formed by Lake Victoria, which is, uh, forms the headwaters of the Nile River. For about 70 years until 1962, Uganda was a protector of the United Kingdom, and so English was the first official language of the country, and then Swahili was added as the second official language in 2005. In fact, there are over 80 languages that are spoken in this country, which isn't all that large. After Uganda gained its independence in the 60s, there was a bloody civil war, which was then followed by another brutal decade with the regime of Idi Amin in the 70s. 
severe corruption uh, continues to plague Uganda in both government and business. And in fact, a couple of years ago, watchdog agency Transparency International ranked Uganda 151st out of 176 countries on its list. As far as the religious situation is concerned, 85% of the population would identify as Christians, uh, with about 40% of that being Roman Catholic, about 30% Anglican, and only around 10% being evangelical, and even that statistic includes Pentecostals and Charismatics. Islam uh, has a growing presence in the country as it does throughout East Africa, making up the remaining 15% of the population, and in fact, uh, from where I am here on the campus, I can hear the Islamic call to prayer three times a day. So Islam really is sitting right on the doorstep of Word of Life here in Uganda. Last week, I had a discussion with Mike Gendron, David, about the Pope's visit to the United Arab Emirates. But I also wanted to discuss this with you, since you have been teaching about Roman Catholicism for over 30 years and also because right now you're in a part of the world where there are regular clashes between Christians and Muslims. Well, this meeting in the United Arab Emirates isn't the first time Pope Francis has made overtures toward Muslims, and he's made it clear that he believes that the God of Islam and the God of the Bible are the same, and so Muslims should at least in some sense be viewed as brothers. Um, I was reading an article about the meeting on the Guardian website, which is a British newspaper, and it carried the headline, Pope and Grand Imam Sign Historic Pledge of Fraternity in UAE, which of course is the United Arab Emirates, one of the Gulf states. Uh, the article goes on to say, the Pope and the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar have signed a historic declaration of fraternity, which means brotherhood, obviously, uh, calling for peace between nations, religions, and races in front of a global audience of religious leaders from Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Uh, the article also noted that the Pope and the Imam, and uh, this Imam is the head of Sunni Islam's most prestigious uh, seat of learning, uh, the Pope and the Imam arrived at the ceremony in Abu Dhabi hand in hand in what was meant to be a symbol of interfaith brotherhood. And then the Pope also met with the Crown Prince who later tweeted this. He said, uh, we discussed enhancing cooperation, consolidating dialogue, tolerance, human coexistence, and important initiatives to achieve peace, stability, and development for peoples and societies. So Jimmy, this really is a big deal that we do need to be watching. How is such a meeting, dialogue, and agreement like this even possible, David? I know the Pope tends to push the envelope in a lot of areas. But also, the Catholic Church sees itself as the only true religion in the world. As you said, this Pope does seem to like to push the envelope on a lot of things, and this meeting in UAE is certainly no exception. And you're right, uh... Catholicism historically has seen itself as the only true religion and that for anyone to have uh, any hope of salvation, they would need to be baptized into the church, uh, faithfully participate in the sacraments, consistently obey the teachings of the church, and try to live a good life uh, with the hope that uh, when they die, they, they don't have a mortal sin on their soul. 
However, uh, in practical terms, all that changed with the last ecumenical council of the church, which was Vatican II, uh, that was held from 1962 to 1965. Um, even though the church would say that doctrine doesn't change, there was a massive shift that can be seen in the Vatican II documents, which I, I actually read when I was in seminary. Uh, such that the Catholic Church came to be viewed as the sacrament of salvation in the world. And so what this means is that if anyone is saved, even if they practice another religion or even no religion at all, then they are saved in and through the Catholic Church whether they realize it or not. So I guess we could say that it, it isn't your grandmother's or maybe your great-grandmother's Catholic Church. And so even though Pope Francis in some ways is seen as being a radical, all he's really doing is uh, being faithful to uh, the Vatican II documents and trying to uh, make sure that uh, the teachings and the position of the tr Catholic Church is found there is, is actually carried out uh, throughout the world. David, you taught a course here at our School of Prophets last year on understanding Islam. So from the Islamic perspective, how would you evaluate what appears to be some sort of a meeting in the middle between the world's two largest religions? To be honest, I don't think the leaders in Islam can be trusted when it comes to ecumenical dialogue. The leaders in the Islamic world, whether it be the Sunnis or the Shiites, they are determined to establish an Islamic caliphate or kingdom throughout the world. And they will say and do whatever it takes to subdue the world of the infidels. And that would include people of the book, meaning Christians and Jews. Uh, and this subjugation of the world means forced conversions uh, or heavy taxation or even death if those first two options are rejected. Uh, and in Islam, there is something called taqiyah, which is the concept that Muslims are permitted to lie and be deceptive about what they believe as well as their intentions uh, in the face of persecution. So you can go so far as to even deny your faith in order to preserve uh, Islam uh, in the world. And of course, how and when it is applied is quite open to interpretation. Uh, so I think this Islamic cleric and the crown prince in Abu Dhabi, as well as probably most other Muslim leaders who choose to interact with the Pope or anyone else for that matter, they see things like this as both a matter of preservation uh, and whatever drastic measures uh, need to be taken to advance the caliphate. Uh, bottom line, they can't be trusted. David, a lot of conservative evangelicals have been talking and writing about the agreement and many consider it a further stage setting for the end-time scenario that we find in the prophetic word of God. Now, having just finished up the course of God's plan through the ages, how would you say that this all fits together in God's timeline for the future? Well, here's the way I see it possibly playing out. The rapture is the next event on God's prophetic calendar, then there will be a gap of time between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. Uh, this gap is necessary for the revival of the Roman Empire based on Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. Then there will be a leader rise up from obscurity, the little horn in Daniel's vision of the beast in chapter 7, and this is the Antichrist, also spoken of in Revelation as the beast from the sea. So I think in the aftermath of the rapture, America will likely collapse and Israel will lose its only protector in the world. And this will provide the prime opportunity the Antichrist needs 
and he will consolidate the military and economic might of the European nations to protect Israel from its uh, Islamic enemies with a seven-year peace treaty. Then the false prophet also comes on the scene, uh, the beast from the land, and I think it's very possible that he will be the head of the Roman Catholic Church at that time, the Pope, and this groundwork that is being laid by the present Pope will play into this so that the Islamic nations will agree to this peace deal, but probably with no intention of keeping it. We also know the Antichrist is going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem because he is going to enter the temple and declare himself to be God at the midpoint of the tribulation. We know that from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, and, and that means that the Dome of the Rock will have to come down. And I think this ha- is what will trigger the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 when a coalition of Islamic countries likely led by Russia will come against the Antichrist and the nation of Israel and uh, they will be be destroyed by God. Great discussion, David. Great insight. Thank you for bringing all of that to the table. David, uh, we'll talk to you in Uganda next week. Looking forward to another conversation with another issue. Thank you so very much for being available. We'll talk to you next week. Well, thanks so much, Jimmy. It's always great to be with you. I look forward to uh, talking with you next week, and you'll catch me just as I'm heading back home to the United States for a few weeks. We're going to take a break, and when I come back, I'll open up the Bible. We'll think about what our broadcast partners had to say as it relates to current events, and we'll see how that all fits together as we take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today 
for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, we heard key reports from our broadcast partners in different locations and regions across this world. You know, these reports are so important for us to better have a understanding and to be able to recognize where we are in God's time clock for the end of times. Now, the reports from my broadcast partners can be heard again, or if you missed them for the very first time, at my website. Go to prophecytoday.com and then go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. All six of the reports will be made available to you. They've been archived, and they are ready for you to listen to. Again, the location where they can listen to these reports, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. You know, when they get there, they'll find out that Ken Timmerman is covering the geopolitical activities around the world. He was with me to talk about the Israeli intelligence community and how they believe that Iran can have a nuclear weapon of mass destruction within two years. We all thought that the Iranian nuclear deal would shut the Iranians down from developing that nuclear weapon. That is not the case. Some even believe that weapon, at least one or two of them, could be ready and be able to be put on a delivery system, one of the Shahab-3 missiles, to deliver to any target in the state of Israel. This is a very key report for you. Ken Timmerman talking about Iran ready to have a nuclear weapon of mass destruction. Got that from the Israeli intelligence community. Remember, Iran is the major threat that you can find in God's prophetic word. That would be Ezekiel chapter 38 and verse 5, where Iran is referred to as Persia. And don't forget that a nuclear-powered Iran today is not only a danger and the number one threat to Israel, but indeed they are a threat to the entire world. Then we brought to the broadcast table David Dolan. He has a Middle East news update. He gives it to us each week. This is one of those key regions that I was talking about. You need to know what's happening in this key region to understand God's plan for the future. David brought to our attention that Iran is moving away from the Israeli border there in the north, moving from Kenetra, which is in Syria, about two and a half miles from that Israeli border. They're moving away because the Israeli airstrikes have been hitting their personnel and the locations where they're firing their weapons from and preparing to come into Israel to try to take it over. Now, this is key information, but it's only a strategic move because they are now arming all the other enemies of Israel around the region, and they'll be able to participate together with the Iranians. And again, please don't forget that Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40 makes the statement that the king of the north, early on in the chapter, the king of the north described in real estate as Syria today. Syria will make the first move in an alignment of nations that will come against the Jewish state of Israel. 
Winky Madad and I had a conversation. Always enjoy talking with Winky. He is somewhat of a historian. He knows about every single aspect of the history of Israel. Always have a great conversation. We focused on Sheikh Sabri, who is the Islamic Council leader there in Jerusalem. He is making the statement that the Jews have no connection to the Western Wall, thus they should not be allowed to pray at the Western Wall, which is basically what they do often sometimes three times in a day. Well, that is not the truth. That Western Wall is a retaining wall. There's an Eastern retaining wall, a Southern retaining wall, and the Western Wall, which is a retaining wall as well, has nothing to do with any walls of the temple. And back 2,000 years ago, Herod the Great built those retaining walls in the East, South, and West, and he used somewhere in the area of about 10,000 Jewish slaves to help him build that wall. Now, they do have a connection to the Western Wall. If nothing else, they built that retaining wall. And the Bible tells us in the book of Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, you may recognize it as, in that book, chapter 2 and verse 9, they pray at that wall because of what Song of Songs has to say, according to the rabbis. This is key to your understanding of what's going on in Jerusalem. John Rood talked to us about the Warsaw Conference that's taking place in Warsaw, Poland. This is key. John reports on the European Union. Uh, This is a very important conference. Sixty nations coming together trying to discern how all of these nations can deal with Iran. And there are Middle Eastern nations there, European Union nations. All nations are concerned about the Iranian threat, especially a nuclear-powered Iran. Great report from John. Jim Jr. had a question from one of our listeners, and may I suggest if you want your question answered, you have a prophecy question, I'll give you the answer if you'll send us the question. Send that question to Jim Jr. at prophecytoday.com. And then David James and I talked about what I introduced last week when I had Mike Gendron on the line with me. We talked about the Pope meeting in an Arab state, an Islamic leader, and coming together with an agreement. Well, David and I expanded it. We talked about the agreement. What is it saying? How have they agreed to work together? And the Pope and this Islamic leader saying they are looking forward to the relationship in the future. That is simply a precursor to the one world church that will be located in Rome, Italy, Read the book of Revelation, chapter 17. It lays out that this one world church will be located in Rome, Italy. It will be under the power of the Antichrist. His name, the beast, is used eight times in chapter 17. And ultimately, it will be destroyed. So the Antichrist moves to Jerusalem for the abomination of desolation that will be in that temple in Jerusalem. Well, dear friend, if you think about what I've just reviewed with you from our broadcast partners, you have to recognize everything is set for the next event in God's calendar of activities, the rapture to take place. And that rapture could happen actually today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... 
Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.